for great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. The TNT Shop is now open at tntradio.live. Discussing the politics of the new European populism, Pella Neuroth-Taylor, on today's News Talk, TNT. Well, today, uh, this is the Pella Neuroth-Taylor show. We're just going to take an excursion to uh, Asia because there's a big election taking place in Indonesia, which is one of those countries you hear very little about, and the Indonesians are probably very thankful of that. Uh, it's a country that occupies almost zero bandwidth on the international scene, although the fact it's got, uh, it's I think, the world's most fourth most populous country, 18,000 islands, of which only a third are inhabited. And if you look on a globe, rather than the truncated Mercata projection most of us see in our uh, school atlases or on our wall maps, Indonesia is this enormous island archipelago that stretches wider than the United States, crossing the tropics on either side and looking in a shape that we're sort of not familiar with because it's it's all these islands, many of which are the world include the world's largest, like Sumatra and Borneo. Um, the um, the election taking place between three candidates: uh, Ganjar, Pranovo, Prabova, Subianto, and Anias Baswedan. No prizes for my pronunciation there. Um, and I think the um, even even educated uh, Western audiences will find it difficult to get a handle on on the uh, domestic developments. Um, I just talked right now to a, a journalist colleague who's in uh, Indonesia a few months ago, and he describes the country as being uh, a very large uh, and very successful uh, states that is sort of a co- cross between Singapore and. Uh, in the Gulf states in terms of its uh, developmental forward drive, which um, is a big surprise to me because I knew, know the Philippines much better and the Philippines is, a, is quite a messy place and India as well. But um, it's full of infrastructure projects, uh, large motorways, uh, Jakarta is a city of skyscrapers and uh, high speed railways connecting, uh, r- running across on rails across the, the palm groves and the jungle. And uh, a sense of cleanliness and purpose and organization. And um, the thing that we can talk about that kind of will make connections to this particular audience on TNT is the way that uh, the UK and the US have meddled in Indonesia's past affairs, which we can thankfully say they've recovered from. But um, we go back quickly into history and we look at the 1950s when Indonesia had won its independence from uh, Holland this tiny country in Europe, when it was known as the Dutch East Indies, and then a sort of neutralist guy who was trying to called um, Sukarno, who was going to unite all the various blocs in the country, including the Muslims and the communists who were secular. The communists were always very powerful, but they were openly campaigning. They were part of a, a sort of democratic system. And this sort of big tent system uh, under this mildly autocratic figure and the irritation of the Americans and the British, partly because he was threatening to nationalize the resources of this very prosperous, rich country, rich in natural resources, which had Western investment, and the Western investors did not want to lose their money. And he was also uh, in confrontation with the British, who had Malaysia next door, the colony of Malay- Malaya, and maybe he wanted to absorb that or at least bring it under the much larger country's influence. So they were actually armed fighting between the British and the Indonesians, British special forces going across from their part of Borneo, which is still today divided between Malaysia, formerly British Malaysia and in Indonesia. And the British wanted to get, and the Americans wanted to get rid of this guy, 
Sukarno, who was also a leading figure in the non-aligned movement that didn't want to take sides between East and West and didn't want their country torn apart by the Cold War, with one side, the Russians supporting the communists in a particular country and the other side supporting the capitalists and big business. They wanted to focus on national development. And part of this this non-aligned movement actually launched in, a, in an Indonesian city of Bandung in 1955. And apparently Bandung is, uh, is still a revered word in Indonesia. And uh, they remember their their location as the, the history is the location of the birth of the non-aligned neutral movement with great fondness. India was also part of this movement and Yugoslavia and various other countries. And the UN was trying to connect to this movement. And I think this offended uh, the Americans and the British who wanted the UN to have much more of a pro-Western focus. All this, of course, is relevant to our new Cold War world where the BRICS nations on one hand and the global South and then, and then the weakening West. So this can be discussed ad nauseum if we get some Indonesian experts on. Anyway, there was a savage civil war with uh, British propaganda, the Information Research Department, uh, feeding black propaganda into uh, the into the Western media to get the idea that um, the uh, communists were a, a rebellious and vicious force that needed to be put down. And what happened was that uh, uh, Sukarno was replaced by Suharto, who was a, a military leader to the West's liking in, in, in the style of Pinochet in Chile or Mobuto in Zaire. And he massacred up to three million people, according to some estimates, most of whom were not communists, but were just civilians. So that's one black mark that we do not often hear about. But fortunately, uh, we can all the ins and outs, he was uh, this dictator. Uh, Suharto lasted for 30 years. And then in 1998, uh, Indonesia transitioned to democracy and things have been more or less quiet since. And we're happy to report that the country seems to uh, attain a, a level of prosperity with uh, given the non-interference. Anyway, we'll, we'll follow the results of that election closely. And let's pray that Indonesia does not hit the headlines in the same way that Gaza and Ukraine does. We, we will be talking about those issues and more with our news producer, Basil Valentine, after a break. This is TNT Radio. The latest headlines waiting for you. I follow the news pretty much throughout the day. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to TNT. This is the Pelineros Taylor Show. Thanks. Uh, well, what have you got for us today, Basil Valentine? Uh, you have been scouring the news and been uh, getting us up to speed on what's going on. Well, it's what TNT have got for us. And I'm delighted to say that TNT will be at the High Court next week, Tuesday, February the 20th and Wednesday, February the 23rd, for the hearing to determine whether or not Julian Assange will have permission to appeal or whether he will be extradited to the United States. We're going to be outside the courts of justice, uh, running a rolling news service. Uh, also this week, there is the London premiere, sponsored by us here at today's News Talk, of The Trust Fall, Julian Assange, a new film uh, in addition to Ithaca. Uh, and this is being screened at the Rio Cinema on Sunday, this coming Sunday, the 18th of February at 1 p.m., followed by a panel discussion and Q&A with, amongst others, Tariq Ali and Christine Raffenson, and very possibly, or even probably, Stella Assange. 
To find out oh, more, good. go to the trustful Julian Assange London premiere. And that is sponsored by TNT. So, yes, it's coming to a head for Julian. Um, is this the last chance saloon for Julian? Yeah, I mean, if he wins, I mean, I don't know whether there's the possibility of throwing the, of the judge throwing the case out next week, which is what he should do, given that he's being extradited to a country that plotted to kill him and that tampered mm. with evidence, withheld evidence, all sorts of procedural reasons why mm -hmm. the case should be thrown out and mm -hmm. why, if it was uh, in an American court, would be thrown out. Mm. But, of course, special rules apply to Julian Assange and his case, especially vindictive rules that seem to circumvent due process. We'll mm. doubtless find out more about that in the film The Fall, Julian Assange. Even if he wins next week, though, the most likely best scenario for Julian is that he's given leave to appeal his extradition. And that mm. then means another period. Well, I suppose, thinking it through, there's a chance that he could be granted bail uh, next week. Mm. Uh, that would be a huge win. If, if, he's, if he wins the right to appeal, he could then be granted bail and therefore is obviously released uh, to his family for the first time in for the first time in his children's lifetime. Remember, his children, mm. I believe, were conceived when he was in the Ecuadorian embassy and mm -hmm. uh, they, they've never known their father to be free. So mm. um, the best What's... he can hope for is he's released on bail pending appeal. The worst he can hope for is that he's whisked off to the United States within a few days. So it's it's do or die time. Well, I mean, it's an incredibly tense and interesting moment, which I urge yeah, you all to follow on TNT because uh, mainstream media are not exactly trustworthy on anything. And um, the, uh, the, the sort of um, the kind of people who are in, follow Julian Assange normally back in nine or 10 years ago and for whom he was a hero, well, they're, paper of choice the guardian famously betrayed him and uh called him uh, and uh and he sort of piggybacked on the julian assange name to become a global brand and a liberal leftist uh, conscience of the world very popular in america oh. that and i think the uh the born films where guardian also featured and of course that's when it, i think it, it was taken in my view was taken over by the british deep states Precisely yes. because it had its name for credibility, and then it churned out all these. Uh, it went with all the official narratives on Syria and Ukraine. Yes. Much of it complete lies, and uh, yes. so it's like the Washington Post of England, you know. But it, the Guardian had very close relationships with the with the with Julian Assange. What um, can you tell us something more about um, what's? Um, do you hear you, you're closer to the ground in England than I am because I'm in Sweden at the moment. What do you, do? You, does he still have a following in the British left liberal circles? Oh, enormous. I mean, in fact, the campaign to free him has been very successful in the last few years in galvanising support from all sorts of different quarters, uh, including the former editor of The Guardian, Alan Rusbridger, uh, mm. who penned an op-ed in The Independent today saying he now supports the freedom of Assange. So does the New York Times editorial board. So finally... Uh, the cognoscenti, the chattering classes, as it were, Penny, uh, mm -hmm. of the liberal left uh, have come round to his side. 
in spite yeah. of the sex smears uh, and all the rest of it, and most importantly, of course, the fundamentals of the case. But that doesn't necessarily cut any ice with the so-called Department of Justice in the mm. United States. You know, we know that public opinion is of very little relevance to the likes of Joe Biden. I mean, Biden could drop the case tomorrow and it's all over. And mm. uh, there is no hearing next week. Um, that's unlikely to happen. Uh, the political will still seems to be there in Washington to follow through with this pernicious prosecution, uh, even though, uh, you know, obviously it, it's baseless and uh, the punishment far outweighs the crime. I mean, it's worth Incredible. remembering yeah. that Julian is imprisoned for exposing war crimes. And the people who perpetrated those war crimes are not only walking free, but in the case of people like Tony Blair, they have been richly rewarded for their sins. It is indicative mm. of just how inverted this world is, that that is the mm. case. There, and haven't other journalists published more stuff than he has? But I mean, I guess, what what is, is there a political motive for this? It's, it's to discourage other whistleblowers oh, yeah. from ever doing anything yes. again. Yes, he humiliated the United States government and they don't like that. Mm. You know, he exposed mm. them for what they are. And... Mm. Um, they're, you know, they're not too happy about it. A couple of other little vignettes to come out. Uh, I don't mm -hmm. know if you've seen this or if uh, viewers know about it. Andrei Molodkin says he has gathered 16 works of art, including pieces by Picasso, Rembrandt and Andy Warhol, and that he is going to destroy them in a 29 tonne safe with an extremely corrosive substance if mm. Julian dies while in prison. And he is apparently mm. supported in this action by Stella Assange, Julian's wife. Inside the vault are boxes containing the art with a pneumatic pump connecting two white barrels, one with acid powder and the other with an accelerator. And these will cause a chemical reaction strong enough to turn the safe's contents to debris, according to Molodkin. $45 million worth of art uh, could be destroyed. Uh, Molodkin told Sky News, in our catastrophic time, when we have so many wars, to destroy art is much more taboo than to destroy the life of a person. Since Julian has been in prison, freedom of expression, freedom of speech, freedom of information has started to be more and more repressed. I have this feeling very strongly now. He is a Russian mm. dissident, and he's refused to reveal exactly which pieces of art are under threat, but it includes work by Picasso, Rembrandt, Andy Warhol, Jasper Johns, Janice Kunelis, Robert Rauschenberg, Sarah Lucas, Santiago Sierra, Jake Chapman, and Molodkin himself, among others. What do you make of that, Pelly? Uh, well, I mean, if he's a kind of modern artist, situation art, or is out to grab a headline, he might be just bluffing, and but even the bluff will be revealed as some part of some sort of comment on propaganda of our age or something. You know, I don't know. Uh, we, um, or it could be very small pieces of art or something. I, I don't know. I, I, I tend to sort of think, well, maybe not. You know, but uh, what well, do you think? Do you think? The, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm in two minds about it. When I first read it, I mm. thought this is nihilistic and completely unnecessary. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it's never a good thing to destroy art. But reading his reasoning there, I, I'm inclined mm. to slightly change my mind, although uh, 
the Rembrandt would be a terrible loss. Uh, yeah. The Picasso, well, Picasso had an absolutely huge output. So depending on what yeah. piece it is and from what period, it may or may not be missed. As for the modern art, he can do what he likes with it, as far as I'm concerned. And he's got a very, he's got a very, uh, uh, he makes a very important point, uh, which is that destroying art is more taboo than destroying people's lives, not just Julian's, but in Gaza. He does, indeed. So, Although, so, I mean, you, you can know, say, well, why, why does... He sell the Go contents on. of the pretend to blow it up sell the contents of the safe if it is real art to some oligarch you know somewhere and use that money for the julian assange defense fund or well, funding yeah. tnt or whatever uh not the T. Yeah, yeah i i hear you i hear you but it um it's interesting it grabs I... the headlines as it were and it, it makes a valid point doesn't it about art and and people worry more do seem to worry more about that i mean i've i can't remember which conflict it was but it I've seen past conflicts where they'll have a big article about the the failure to protect Baghdad's museum, and then a, a smaller article on the latest death toll uh, in uh, Iraq or whatever. So uh, it is something that we we do have double standards about. Anyway, yes. that is very interesting. Well, we'll uh, do tune in then on the twentieth and twenty first to follow here. Right, yes. uh, the honest approach, and we'll be. continue here. The place to be is TNT. Thank you, Basil. See you tomorrow. And this is TNT Radio. TNT's Timothy Shea. The race is essentially now Vivek Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley. Ron disappoints us. We'll be pulling his hat from the ring next. And the issue, as always, is why is the Nikki taking so much of the left's money? Well, maybe this will give you a little insight. She credits Hillary Clinton with inspiring her to enter politics, having attended a women's leadership summit at which Hillary spoke. And Nikki said, and I quote, I then had to decide whether I was a Republican or Democrat. See, Nikki has no core beliefs other than doing whatever her globalist masters, paymasters, want her to say. The Reckoning with Timothy Shea on today's News Talk. TNT. A better business tip from TNT Radio. The benefits of advertising on today's news talk, TNT Radio, should be clear to businesses of any shape or size. It can be accessed anywhere, anytime, by anybody, and is the perfect way to build brand awareness and stimulate digital activity. If you'd like more information about advertising on TNT Radio, simply fill out your details on our contact page and we'll be in touch. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. Top of the hour, we'll keep on top of the news. It's the most important thing we can do. On today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Um, so welcome back to TNT. Patrick Chalmers is my next guest. He's a, a ex-Reuters journalist, a writer, an author, political analyst, and has various projects, which are we, I, the reason I invited on the show is we're old friends from uh, way back when we were at journalism school in London. And we've both gone on parallel journeys uh, away from the mainstream media. We've rejected their their iron grip and sought the truth instead. So we've both been idealists. Um, I'll just tell you a little bit about the, uh, we went to City University, which billed itself as a sort of Columbia Journalism School of the UK. It took in graduates mostly because um, I think the, the powers that be at the city wanted to get away from this idea that people go to a local journalism Local newspaper with a bully of a news editor telling you to to write 
straightforward English and talk to people, you know, in the local communities and do that. And it appealed it, because just then British journalism was much more hands-on and practical than American journalism. And American journalism was more abstract and theoretical and American journalists took themselves more seriously and they were more intellectual or whatever. And they called themselves a fourth estate, whereas British journalists were sort of more practical and, and they went into the tabloids and uh, the uh, British intellectuals, intellectuals working in journalism wanted to have a more intellectual graduate class going into journalism. So we had a lot of, we had a re really good times. We learned a lot and we had, we do had, we did have sociology as one of our courses and so on. But Patrick, what do you remember of City University? What's your outstanding memory? Um, hey, Pella. And also thanks for the, the invite onto your show. Um, it was really good fun uh, is what I remember. You know, I was by that stage, I was slightly older than the the group because I'd uh, I'd finished university, then done a couple of years of work before I arrived. And uh, I was also paying for the course myself. So it wasn't like because at the time in our in our generation, um, there was a lot of uh, uh, sort of uh, education that was free. You got a grant to go and everything. But I was actually paying out of my pocket. So I, uh, as a good Scotsman, was was paying a lot of attention to everything that was on offer. And that included learning shorthand. Um, so which, which, rather than having a, a electronic recording device. Um, but. I remember I remember a great deal of enjoyment in doing the course. It was like a sense of relief for me to get going. I'd done an undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering and French, so it's very science technical based, uh, despite the fact that I I think I had a a leaning from you know pre-university towards journalism and politics. So it was fun. I learned a lot. I learned a lot. I enjoyed my peers, including you, Pella, and um, mm -hmm. off I went into the world afterwards. I, I just say because do you remember? Were you idealistic then? I'll just tell you what I remember because I was known as the right winger <laughs> even then, and um, I've sort of travelled. I mean, I but I never. I was always a truth teller. But I remember. I think John Pilger is a hero to a lot of our audience coming on because uh, we had these famous people talking once a week. I think. And uh, he was saying, and I made jokes about, he was very emotional as usual and talking about some project in the third world. And I, I, th I think I talked about him pilgerizing everything. And by pilgerizing is turning, making everything to an emotional swamp. And, <laughs> and I think I, I, I earned the ire and anger of a lot of the sort of left-wing students on the course. But I think I've actually, the funny thing is, I have pursued the sort of Pilgerite course in journalism with all our left-wing friends. I think that was like skin deep because then they went on to work and prosper in the corporate media. So it's as always, I was the dis dissident then from the prevailing left-wingery of the course by being sort of right-wing and, and cynical. But I'm the one who stuck, stayed close to, to the ideals of journalism that they're trying to inculcate. And all our friends went into corporate media and have told lies all their lives, as far as I can tell. And I think you were an idealist as well. Yeah, I mean, I think guilty as charged, Pella, you know, uh, and uh, I'm now 57. I think I still am, funnily enough. Um, it's, a, it's a studied um, way of being somehow. Um, you know, an idealist, if we look at the word, is someone who believes in an ideal. And, and that is, a, in a way, is a North Star. Um, so I look around me in the world as I see it, and uh, there are many, many problems. But that doesn't stop me imagining that there could be something an, an awful lot better. Um, so yeah, but you I'm worked for a long time at Reuters, didn't you? 
after after uh, City you went to Reuters, what was that like? And and were you satisfied with it, or did you feel that you had to stick to certain narrative, the certain third rails or whatever that you were not allowed to talk about or touch? Or um, I think the reality is that um, whatever third rails there were, um, I wasn't really aware of them. You know, I uh, I've got fun enough. I got some books off my shelf, Pella. You know, to, that are surrounding me here. And here's one of them, which I don't know where you stand as a as a right as a self-defined right winger on this, but this is this is Chomsky um, manufacturing consent. And you know, I went off to work for Reuters, um, uh, very eager and uninitiated in any sort of media studies, which was pretty rubbish. You know, I'd done a an a year's journalism course, and whether you're left wing or right wing, and you're doing uh, a media activity, you should know your Chomsky, and I didn't. And um, so I went into Reuters without understanding what the effects of uh, ownership of the media outlet outlet had on, you know, the news that you did. I had no sense. And these are all Chomsky filters, Chomsky and Herman, the filters of, of um, creating our, our sort of media as propaganda machines. So who owns it matters a lot. The base ideology of the journalists and the editors matters a lot. Um, the flack that they might suffer from the institutions in terms of if you go out on a on as it were on a limb yeah. away from the conventional truth you get you get flack um, in the sense of it from you know non arms but um, sort of pa- Patrick uh, sorry do, do you yeah. think that Roy I mean Reuters had this reputation for being vanilla or whatever you want to call it clear clear prose and I I've read your book broadcast news and it's very well yeah. written because you've got that clarity of style that, that you learned at Reuters I mean no messing around no no um what's the word it's it's very cl- very clean and clear and tells you what you want to know but on the other hand uh, some people have said that Reuters isn't at, at all as unpropagandistic as it claims to be um Noam Chomsky would say that propaganda uh is embedded even in these supposedly absolutely neutral uh, wire services that everyone in the world relies on to tell them the absolute truth, what's going on. Is there propaganda even at Reuters? Absolutely, unequivocally. Um, So Chomsky is completely right. And, you know, using those tests, um, Reuters, now Thomson Reuters main clients are banks, uh, financial, uh, financial institutions, and also governments. So if you look at where most of Reuters money comes from, or Thompson Reuters at the time, I haven't looked at the figures recently, but it was in the 90 percentage uh, amount of money revenue was coming in from banks, financial institutions and trading screens. So if you were to go and work for an organization like Reuters and think that somehow you are a bastion of truth, which is, I think, probably where I went in, um, you are um, under a huge illusion. And and that gradually dawned on me over eight, eleven years. I worked for them on on uh, salary. And, just to um, stop you there. Sorry, we, we've got yeah. to get into the news headlines from Reuters. <laughs> ironically, <laughs> back after the break. Okay. The conversation continues. You guys are awful positive today for what we're witnessing. It's that division that they want to push. Now, TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. Australia has sounded the alarm over Israel's planned ground offensive in the southern Gaza city of Rafah. The White House is once again being called out for its hypocrisy after President Joe Biden joined TikTok, despite previously banning the Chinese-owned app on government devices, declaring it a national security risk. And over a dozen people have been injured in a massive explosion that ripped through an amusement park in Sweden. 
Why not give TNT Radio a follow? We're on all major social platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gab, and Getter. Help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time right here on today's News Talk. TNT Radio. TNT Radio. So welcome back to our dialogue here on TNT Radio with Patrick Chalmers. Uh, we is a recovering uh, mainstream journalist, as am I. <laughs> Uh, we're talking about Reuters and propaganda. So you felt that, yes, it was very propagandistic. And then you summarized all your thoughts in a book called Fraudcast News, which was your, uh, which was a sort of, when I first read it, it was a revelation, but that's before I read Chomsky and I read Chomsky after that. But t- tell us what your Fraudcast uh, News book was about and it's uh, the, the, the bugbears that you had then. Well, um, you know, Fraudcast News, the, the subtitle was How Bad Journalism Supports Our Bogus Democracies. You know, so I wasn't mincing my words. Um, and the bad journalism was what you talk about in terms of conventional media, which is um, basically um, pretty much parroting what our conventional institutions tell us. It's going to the prime minister's press conference and then running it as is. So, I mean, if you take the example of Tony Blair, you go to a Tony Blair press conference when he was prime minister, you wouldn't, as a Reuters journalist, put in elements of uh, the war crimes allegations against Tony Blair that hang over him to this day. And for me, with total justification, you know, you would, the bad journalism wouldn't be calling out the uh, structural problems of electoral democracy, you know, how that electoral democracy doesn't actually really give us any choice as as voters or even as just citizens. Um, You can either vote for this party, which is doing one version of you know modern capitalism or you can vote for this one i mean i'm british if you if you look at labor versus the conservatives um there, there's much more that unites them than divides them and as a bad journalist according to the title of my book i wouldn't get into that at all i would get into rishi sunak and keir starmer and labor versus conservative as if they were demonstrably different when actually on many many different levels with regard to things like economic growth or you know the way they run the budget uh, they're not. Uh, they're not so so different, really. Um, and the bogus, you, so the bogus democracies Reuters, is to question the democracies as well. Would you say that Reuters lies by omission, or does it lie also by commission? I mean, it, it lies by by withholding context. But you could excuse that because they're news services. We just have to tell the latest developments. But um, I mean. Lies is a big word. I mean, if I if I think about myself as 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 and as was my self image at, at that time, you know, and I even have friends who still work for Reuters. Um, I didn't think I was lying. What I was doing was I was writing from a uh, a very narrow perspective. So I was like, if I was looking at you know potentially the rainbow, I was describing a tiny bit of the rainbow. So I wasn't I wasn't lying about the bit of the rainbow I could see, um, but it was a very small part of the rainbow. And, you know, it, it has all the elements of who I am. You know, I'm a, I'm a posh sounding Scotsman. I'm in my late 50s. You know, I had a, a very sort of middle class, upper middle class background. Um, you know, I've uh, I've had a great life. Um, so I speak from the, the dread word privilege. You know, I have had all the advantages possible. And so my perspective on the world of 8 billion people is very narrow, either within Reuters or even now having left it. Yeah. I mean, even our criticism of the West, which we engage in a lot, is a sort of Western indulgence, you could say. I mean, anyway. Um, but I mean, it's, it's, it's not just, an indulgence, yeah. Pella. I'd say it's more, it's more, it's just very limited. 
Um, yeah. And it's from my north of Scotland perspective. That's where I came from, you know. Just to, the, the, the Reuters thing, the, I think the thing is when uh, news agency journalism is a young man's thing because you you're always running around between press conferences. And also you're probably used to taking down notes literally from one's days at university, you're used to being spoon fed. And then you don't, you don't have the context anyway to supply to it. Would you say that Reuters journalism is this kind of thing you grow out of? I mean, are any of your colleagues from way back who are still in agency journalism think this is not for me anymore because I know so much more now? I think it's uh, what's interesting. I've got a a, a book on my uh, shelf there called Disciplined Minds. It's by a guy called Jeff Schmidt, and he he became a journalist, but from physics. He was in physics academia, and he went up and up and up. and And his notion of disciplined minds actually applies across all the, as it were, white collar professions: banking, academia, um, law. Property, whatever you you would want to look at, including journalism. So it's like it's more this idea that the further you go into something and you become invested with your skill set, your network, your whole sense of being, and your salary and status, then the less likely you are to step out. So mm. um, you know, I have bankers, banker friends from university who went into banking saying, I, "I'll only do it for a few years and then I'll go out and do what I really want to do." And hey, what a surprise, they're still bankers, you know, 40 mm. years later or 35 years later. So mm. I, th I think the mistake we make is that somehow um, people are doing this as consciously as we might think if we're saying they're lying or this or that, or they're going to grow up or not. We, we get caught into our silos. That's the real problem. Mm. And then we don't get out of them. Although, Patrick, it seems to me that you have made a breach with that world because you, after you left Reuters, you went and settled in France, southern France, near Toulouse, and you're engaged in these uh, democracy promotion projects and you've done documentaries and much else. We've got two minutes left. Can you talk a little bit about those? Yep. Um, so Fraudcast News was talking about bad democracies. The journalism that I'm doing now, which includes making films through a company, uh, an independent filmmaker called All Hands On, I'm basically looking at, okay, so that's bad democracy. What would good democracy be? What would democracy be that actually includes everyone? So I've made films on, for example, citizens' assemblies. The Irish used the citizens' assembly to tackle um, women's sexual reproductive health care, including abortion. And that was lottery selection of people, meant it represented the country of Ireland. Uh, and then they deliberated together on what it means, the, what this is 2017, for a ban, if, if there's a ban on abortion, what does that actually mean for women in Ireland? So they looked at that in great detail and then they came to a deliberated conclusion. It went through parliament to a referendum and was incorporated into the constitution. That's good democracy. That's like real world, real life uh, policies that get considered by people in more sober circumstances and actually change uh, the law. And you, you, uh, you, know, you contrast that with Brexit it's an, it's mm. a it's a referendum which has no consideration we don't know where it's going it's a mess mm. and we're left with a mess in its aftermath sort of thing so i look at what works that's what i'm trying to do well it seems to me that what i mean what you're saying there is you're giving a demonstration of a of a, a media structure that has actually led to uh, in a democratic way led to changing the law in ireland and there's no way you can fault it and what you're saying is you you hope to roll this out scale it up somehow. Um, do you see any opportunity for that? I mean, is that where your next step is or are you focusing on another project? Um, 
I'm, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, there's there's a few different things that I'm doing. One is screening the films that I've made. I've made since 2017 um, films on yeah. citizens' assemblies, on civil disobedience, on democracy in Athens and the, via the European elections. So one is screenings. The other one is actually looking more at us as citizens. What it is? What is it that all of us need to develop as a personal political muscle so that we actually can engage in politics without farming it out to someone else? Uh, That's an excellent idea. Yeah. Excellent idea. Uh, Unfortunately, we've got to go into a break now. And uh, what we'll do is we'll have you on again and we'll discuss that because these are things that interest me very much. So I I, I have the the capacity for change. I think we're on the same track or the slightly different angles. Well, uh, Patrick Chalmers, thank you very much and uh, look forward to seeing you you again. Take care. Bye. We're going to break now. This is TNT Radio. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. The cyclone that's in the north of Australia is kind of unusual for an El Nino season. That's because we have not really had an El Nino season this year in Australia. The Southern Oscillation Index, the longest running measure of the ENSO, or El Nino, La Nina, has not cooperated at all. And we knew this was a problem way back in the Northern Hemisphere fall in our spring because we weren't seeing a lot of typhoons. Usually when you have a big El Nino, you have a lot of typhoons going off and we had the third lowest typhoon production on record. So something funky was going on. However, that Southern Oscillation Index is going to crash for the month of February, which means that our fall should be average in Australia. Now I'm bringing all this up because that crash in February is linked to severe cold in the United States and Europe for February into March. And we're seeing another ferocious storm attacking Norway now. A lot of heavy rain is coming into Europe over the next week. Now the two times that happened, it turned frigid in Europe. Same thing is going to happen. Mid-February to mid-March will be frigid in Europe. You see all these storms crashing into the United States? Well, guess what? It's going to turn frigid in the United States. In fact, for much of the United States, the worst of the winter is on the way. And just think, it all hinges on looking at the weather around Australia. Isn't that nice? Hands across the water. Australia, the States, and Europe. Kumbaya. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog Meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. My dad was a farmer. The guy was bigger than life. He wasn't someone that liked to show his emotion or liked to show when he was struggling. But we all struggle. I want to show emotion to my kids. It's something that brings me so much joy. And I want them to see me working through things. Allow your kids to know that it's okay to struggle. That even dad doesn't know the answer sometimes, but we're going to figure it out together. Propaganda versus the truth. You're with Swedish-British journalist Pella Neuroth-Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. Hi there, welcome back to TNT. And today we're going to, this afternoon, we're going to talk to John Halsman, who's uh, who runs a global political risk firm and has uh, appeared uh, in articles all over the internet, uh, The Hill and Substack and many other places. And today we're going to talk about a subject that's quite close to, to my heart, which is the decline of the uh, European elites and the political elites. Um, Why do you think, and in what way does uh, the decline of our elites manifest itself, John? Uh, And I've seen this in my own life. By the way, thank you for having me. I've seen this in my own life that I've gone to meeting after meeting for my sins in Europe for 30 years now. I run the political risk firm. I've lived in Europe for about 20. 
And we're having the same arguments we did when I started. It's a Kafka novel. Most historically successful elites reach problems, solve some, fail at others, but then move on historically. The problem in Europe is it's a time warp in about 1991. They're still debating the end of the Cold War. They still talk about that. 30 years have gone by and yet nothing has been solved. They're debating the same things over and over again, wondering why Brexit happened, wondering why Americans are frustrated about NATO, wondering why they have five times the economy size of Russia, yet they can't stop them, wondering about assimilation. Um, they're rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic and the band is playing nearer my God to thee. It's pretty late in the day. Hmm. Um, well, I, I think that, uh, I think one of the reasons uh, of decline is that we've got this um politicians are much younger than they used to be so they don't have any historical depth i mean we've got sunak in britain he was a couple of years normally you'd spend 20 or 30 years working up your way the junior ministerial ladder in the uk and then when you're in your 50s or maybe 60 you'd become foreign secretary well he's in parliament for two or three years and then he became foreign secretary and now prime minister and he doesn't have the depth of knowledge and I think it means that you can't manipulate the government machinery to make things happen. And I think that another possibility is the fact that smart for, for the 30 years after the Cold War, um, we clever people did other things than politics because um, we lived in good times, you know, and it was much better paid. And politics became a profession. So in the past, um, there probably never was an ideal time, but let's say there was an ideal time. Let's 19th century, you'd go to Parliament in the morning and then attend your law practice in the afternoon. Uh, so you had you actually had a foot in the real world and you had experience from the real world and all the rest of it. And you were usually a bit older because you had to establish yourself in a career. Now, we, in what you call in Sweden, you've got these factory chickens, as they could call them. You go through the political system, learn how to mouth the right things, usually about immigration and women. And then you get catapulted into your job in your late 20s. And then it's just, it, it rewards intense conformism. And I said, if you were bright, you'd probably work in a bank somewhere or something like that because the salaries are not that high either. So I think it's like a conflict creates uh, good leadership. Bad times create good leaders. And I think we're heading for bad times now. What are your thoughts? I, I, mean, do you I, I think both those things are right and very interesting. That Let's start with the second one. I mean, I did what Republicans, I joked about. I disagreed with the Bush people about the Iraq war. Got that one right. Uh, the neocons were running it, hated them, all of whom never leave Washington. If they were to leave Washington, it would be like leaving oxygen. I did what European, what a good American decision makers used to do, like Harriman, at, you know, in the days of Harriman, Adjison, Boland, Cannon. I went abroad to make money. I got a job. I started my own business out of nothing with my friends. And I said, we think we know more about political risk than these old men have gotten us into trouble in Iraq. Let's test that in the market. If we get it right, we have a lifestyle forever and we can do good work with the private sector. I'm a great example. I didn't want to stay around. When I left Washington, all my friends acted like I was dying when my life was just beginning. So you get a group of people who agree about five or six basic shibboleths, these sacred cows that don't turn out to be true. If you just do more with the Chinese, they'll become more like us and more democratic. That was a shibboleth, obviously untrue. We don't need to spend money on defense in Europe because war has come to an end, obviously untrue. We don't need to worry about the United States and defense spending because they'll always have our back, 
obviously untrue because they only get ahead by talking to each other in this tiny bubble that has nothing to do with the real world. Give me Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, who was a printer, John Adams, who was a lawyer, George Washington, who was a landowner. They all had jobs and lives and did other things. And I'll tell you, when I go back to Washington, I feel like I have an infinite advantage over my friends who've never left because I understand that you have to meet a budget at the end of every month, that other people are dependent on me, that in the private sector, if I'm right in my analysis, they pay me triple, and if I'm wrong, they fire me. And so I have consequences in my life. Exactly. Your point about yeah, that's very interesting. You, if yeah. only journalists were the same. I mean, let's say that the oh. chief editorial writer of the New York Times was fired every time he made an allegation oh. that was turned out wrong. Or he had shares or something. Or he got a performance bonus. Or yeah. if he could have performance reduction for every column he wrote that was a scaremongering or whatever. I'd love to you have that idea. You should get paid if you do more. I agree. You should get paid if yeah. you do better, if you do more. And mm. and I always, I made fun of, you know, bankers are often my clients. And I always, they all read the FT. And I said, the always wrong FT. And someone said, well, mm. what do you mean? And I said, imagine you're in my position. You run a business. If you're wrong about Iraq and you're wrong about Afghanistan and you're wrong about Trump and you're wrong about China and you're wrong about COVID, I wouldn't hire you to get coffee in the morning. Okay. Yeah. I wouldn't hire you to get coffee in the morning. And yet none of these people ever question that they should be an elite where they tell everyone else what to do despite being wrong. Elite, there's always elites. They're always annoying. They always guard their privileges. There's always a level of corruption. But the question is, do certain elites add value to society? If you're Franklin Roosevelt, you can say, yeah, I got us America through the Depression and through World War II. I'll put up with a fair bit of nonsense if you do that. If you're Dwight Eisenhower, I wanted Normandy and helped win the Cold War. I'll put up with a fair bit of nonsense. Our elite has been wrong about all those things I've said, including the journalists and the FT. I mean, I wouldn't hire any of them. If they told me to go left, I'd go right. If they told me to go up, I'd go down. We're failing because we're not holding anyone accountable. And I say to my staff, I don't care what your politics are. I care that you're right. If you're proven right a lot by your call record, I'll pay you more money and promote you. So if you're wrong, just to I'll summarize, I mean, what you're saying is basically here you are a highly experienced uh, risk analyst who has many clients working with banks and who, who, you, you basically sink or swim based on the quality of your predictions. You saying outright, if the FT says A, do not A. If he says A, do the actual opposite. Because I've seen, yeah. I've been in Brussels and yeah. I've seen all these Eurocrats walking around with an umbrella in one arm and their copy of the pink paper in the other sort of all rolled up and they'll unfold yeah. it and read it at meetings and so on. And they're so pleased with themselves. And I've seen these young FT reporters with their nice suits going in and yeah. asking little puppies, asking questions. So, well, well I, I want. I went to St. Andrews. I understand the British elite. I grew up in St. Andrews University. I ended up teaching there. I got my PhD there. I understand the British elite, the American elite. I'm a life member of the Council on Foreign Relations. I'm a made man in mafia right. terms there. And let me tell you, if their record were my record with my firm, we'd have gone bankrupt long ago. The tragedy is they're not being held accountable because the newspapers are part of that elite. They're not criticizing an elite. They go to cocktail parties, as you say, with that elite and ape that elite. And then they're shocked that they're wrong about Iraq and Afghanistan, but there are no consequences. They rise through the network. And yes, I would do the opposite. If you can't make the ape score, and I've just shown they can't, our call record is 80%. I want it to be higher. You can learn from being wrong, absolutely. But you have to admit when you are wrong. You can learn from being right, but you have to not have false modesty and say when you're right. That's how you get better. They don't want to get better. They want to hang together because if they're all wrong together, no one will care.
I do, and I think but, uh, obviously the does. big big threat to all this is cozy elite. Are the uh, is the Trump movement and this sort of baby insurrectionist movements around Europe, which the, the Germans are now talking of banning. I always say to, to the Germans, you, you say you're anti-Nazi, but your anti-Nazism is actually a form of Nazism. The anti-fascism is the new fa fascism. You never learn, do you, you Germans? You always make the same mistake over and over again. So they want to ban the, this dem democracy movement and the, the farmers movement and so on. Do you see, um, do, do you see Trump as, as a, a asset to the system or part of the problem or, or what, what, how do you make of this whole trump movement i think he's an imperfect vessel but an asset to the system and i think the comment selena zito made about him was very good on kind of the base of the republican party the kind of jacksonian base one of the things she said that is right is that most people in the real world look at politicians and and they take them literally but not seriously. With Trump, you take him seriously but not literally. Um, I think that what he said, for instance, about NATO, no, would I have said it like that? No. Is he entirely right about 60 years of skiving their dues and becoming free riders off the United States? Yes. Was he entirely right that China is the next pure competitor superpower to America? Yes. Was he entirely right that we fight way too many stupid wars? Yes. So yes, I think all in all, no one is perfect. I do history, and you mm. mentioned this. The problem with Sunak and the others, that the, why our firm is so successful, is that we hire historians, which when I started was seen as totally a waste of time. You hire political mm. scientists. I said, no, no, no. I want to hire people who understand the real world as it's been lived by real people for the last 3,000 years. There are patterns in this. That's yeah. what matters. That's who we want to hire. No one does that anymore, and I think that's given my firm, for instance, a huge advantage. Okay. I mean, I don't know if we share entirely the same perspectives on the European elite, because I see them as... Okay, so we've been sucking off the teeth of American power for 60 years. On the other hand, you've had the extortionate privilege of the dollar, which allows you to, to buy things by printing dollars. So that's in a way. And then a country that doesn't go your way, you slam them against the wall to make like a mafia guy who says, if you don't continue buying dollars, that's what's going to happen to you. And secondly, we our elites are American stooges, you know. So even when America or the West or someone blows up Nord Stream, which is, it, it, it comes, it, it, Schultz doesn't say anything when, because he doesn't, because he's an American stooge. So my perspective is that um, I worked, I mean, I was a young journalist during the Gorbachev movement in 1989, 1990. I mean, America maybe has this Gorbachev now who is blowing up the system from, from within the hegemonic state in that system. So Gorbachev, the reform happened first in the Soviet Union, and then you had these these paranoid elites in, in Bucharest and East Berlin saying, no, 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 we can't have Gorb. They actually banned Soviet journalists from coming to East Berlin because they would spread the democracy poison, you know, and a little bit like that. I remember, I remember when he kissed Honecker. Yeah, when he kissed Honecker, the kiss of death was the, was the <laughs> That's right. comment because I remember that. You know, I'm, I'm aware so, of the so same we, we've got the, the, the last reformers, the last uh, globalists are, are going to be in Europe. So even as America reforms, we're going to have the hangout holdouts here in Europe who are yes. sucking on a teat that no longer exists. And we, yeah. but we've probably got to deal with that ourselves in Europe. What, so what, well, what, I, what in Europe? I, I agree yeah. with that. I think, I think there's some middle ground. You're right. And, and we're infantilizing Europe and that's bad for both sides. It's a hugely interesting discussion about the quality of our elites in Europe. And I was saying that uh, uh, in Europe, we need uh, drastic reform and we need to take responsibility and we need to elect uh, Europe's, Europeans who take responsibility for our own defense, and that's already happening. Um, I think that, as I said in other shows, we probably need to have a discussion about the way, the extent to which 
uh, European leaders are just not only puppets of uh, American deep state, but the, the, the sort of nexus between uh, a compliant, dishonest media and, and intelligence agencies who create these narratives and, and provoke Russia, for instance, and then set and train this entire warfare machine. And I think, as I've said before, I think we need a kind of Versailles treaty. We need a reckoning before we in Europe, we can be friends with America, but we've got to run our own affairs and probably spend our own, um, uh, we, we spend our own money and run our own affairs and uh, turf out these America dependent elites. And we have to do so before uh, these elites uh, either get us into World War Three, uh, perhaps through a sort of provocation that will and keep the Mar Americans to their Article Five commitments through NATO, with the, the the deep state in Washington eagerly jumping in there, but against the wishes of Trump and so on. So I think that uh, the reason why Trump is so excoriated uh, by uh, our uh, elites in Europe and the media completely in lockstep is because Trump is like the the Gorbachev of uh, of uh, of the Western Empire, and he's blowing it up from uh, inside and. Uh, Sunak is the Honecker of the 2020s, and uh, the Neues Deutschland, which was the East German paper, which literally day, the day before the war came down in November 1989, it was published the usual communist garbage. Well, you now got Die Welt and other German papers publishing globalist garbage, maybe the day before our, uh, the new wall comes down or the new empire, the empire that's been ru ruling us for the last 30 years, uh, reaches its final moment. And... Um, of course, uh, what uh, various alternative journalists will tell you is that, uh, that there are various intel ops to try and prevent this message from getting out. And uh, um, we've got, uh, uh, there's a 77th Brigade in the UK, which apparently puts uh, unfavorable Twitter messages out there or on Facebook posts, which tries to get alternative journalists canceled. Um, and quite in, and in a, such a subtle way that you don't know if it's, if this, these guys are uh, real opponents, it's called astroturfing, I think. And maybe even interrupt a broadcast like this one. You do wonder. Um, but um, I think that as long as you've got people like John who actually earn money, earn and lose money on the quality of their predictions, I think that that could be a model for, for journalism in a way. Uh, and what we need is accountability in everything we do and, and financial accountability in the sense you get rewarded or punished for the quality of your predictions is one such marker. But of course, um, the thing about uh, the, the Freedmans of this world, the Freedman is the lead commentator of the New York Times, who, uh, I mean, he's totally lost touch with reality in my view, is of course his pension and his mortgage and his fat salary is not paid for. He doesn't need to be, he, he obviously has to appeal to his um, audience and there's a prestige thing from i mean everyone wants to be liked and respected but perhaps with some of these people is that their real principles are the tiny little circles in the cocktail parties of georgetown or wherever who appreciate them and they're all living in the same world of unreality as it were that they never get uh, they never get rude shocks and increasingly uh, i think journalists are part of the political class but we'll, uh, 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 people who follow this show know that these are bugbears and we will uh, follow them up. And uh, we'd love to have John on again because what he said is a hands-on uh, daily uh, encounter with the European elites uh, and uh, the bankers of the world with whom deals are absolutely out of touch. This is TNT Radio. Thank you very much.